The scripture passage today is from Luke 19, verse 11 to 27. It's in your Pew Bible, page number 969. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servants. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then, didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that, to everyone who has, more, more will be given. But as for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Right, it's great to be here again. Is it my voice or the speaker? Okay. I have echo here. All right, you, you can hear me? All right, good. Uh, some of you who, who know me might know that before becoming a pastor, I spent about 12 years working in the financial and investment field. And those 12 years were no lacking of anxiety and uh, even chances to, uh, to go through maybe heart attacks because I have been through quite a few uh, financial downturns in the, in the stock market, in the financial market. For example, I have been through the uh, Asian financial crisis in 1998. And then in the beginning of the millennium, I experienced the bursting of the technology bubble, which is uh, one of the biggest destruction of wealth in history. And then I have been through the financial downturn after the September 11th attack and also the subsequent wars against Iraq and Afghanistan. And a few years ago, my old colleagues, they all told me that I was fortunate enough to have left the industry and before the meltdown of the subprime mortgage market in the U.S. But after so many turmoils, so many setbacks, I can testify one thing, 
And this one thing is that capitalism dies hard. Capitalism can overcome all setbacks and will only grow stronger than ever. But whether you like it or not, the principle of capitalism has strongly and unconsciously shaped our mindset, our value system, and our way to see the world. And you know, each of us perceives reality through a variety of lenses. And these lenses include our language, our culture, history, politics, economic theories, and of course, our religion. As people in Canada, one of the most affluent countries in the world, one of our, our most influential lenses is capitalism. And capitalism gives definition, it defines what it means by success in our life. It defines what we mean by good stewardship. And it even defines how we consider what is blessing in our lives. And, and look at our prayer. How is our prayer life affected by capitalism? How much of our prayer is about material needs, such as our job opportunity or job security? our employment advancement, our retirement needs, or even buying a home. Capitalism not only affects how we interpret our reality, it also affects how we interpret the Word of God. And one of the biblical stories that needs a fresh look is the parable of the pounds or the parable of the miners, which is today's parable. Does this parable need to be liberated from the presupposition of capitalism that perhaps have unconsciously influenced our translation and interpretations of this story? And my answer is, definitely. It's a definite yes. But before we go into this fresh look of the parable of the pounds, we need to appreciate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, he likes to, and he is very good at, dealing with money issues. wonder if you have ever noticed just how much of Jesus' teaching deals with our finances. One third of his parables involve the use of money, which is 16 out of 47 parables in total. Jesus has said has more to say about money than prayer and love. And indeed, more about money than prayer and love combined. Jesus constantly used examples involving wealth. For example, he talks about land ownership, investment, loans, having servants and tenants, and inheritance. And also, the list can go on. Jesus, he was familiar with banking practices. He is familiar with employment contracts. And all these suggest that Jesus often speaks to a privileged and affluent audience. Jesus' disciples, for example, they were clearly people who knew their way around money. Fishing, 
For example, fishing was big business. Fishing was profitable business at Jesus' time. And fishing required many employees. Remember when Jesus called James and John to follow him? Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, tells us that these two people, they left their father in the boat with their hired servants. James and John, they were employers. Mark also tells us that Peter owned two homes. He has investment properties, one in Bethsaida and one in Capernaum. And Mark's mother owned a home, a big home in Jerusalem, the capital. The home is large enough to house the emerging church in the book of Acts. So Jesus, he knows money. He knows his way around wealth and he knows what he is teaching. So now let's go back to Jesus' parable of the pounds. The parable is very similar, but yet quite distinctively different to the parables of talents recorded in Matthew 25. Most people understand the parable of the pounds or the parable of the miners as a teaching of stewardship in which we should make good use of our resources and talents in life for God's kingdom purposes. The major theme, therefore, we think, is about wisdom in managing God-given resources to glorify God himself. The first two servants are wise because they are able to generate significant profits from the capital they were entrusted with. The last servant is foolish, as he was overly conservative, and thus he did not invest the money, and therefore he did not generate any profit for his master. He simply forfeited all potential profits by staying put with the money that he was entrusted with. That's how most of us understand the meaning of this parable, right? But again, has capitalism got in the way of how we interpret this parable? If we interpret this parable simply in the theme of wise or foolish stewardship, then we have missed the point. We have not grasped what Jesus wanted to teach us. Well, first, first of all, the comment of the master made about his servants were faithful or wicked, not wise or foolish. Why? Why the third servant who simply did not invest the money is said to be wicked? He did not steal the capital, nor he exploited the profit of the money. He did not make secret profit and then lying to his master saying that he did not invest the money? He did not do that. If we think that he is just being too conservative, then he is at worst stupid. Why wicked? Or, or to parallel the first two servants, unfaithful? Why unfaithful? How is he unfaithful? And, and also, why are the two who made money are commanded as faithful? 
it seems more logical or more relevant to call them wise, like an investment guru, or, or productive, or even successful, right? But faithful? Are they not just lucky to a certain extent? I mean, we all have invested, we know. There's certain luck involved. Chances. They took chances and they made money. What if they made a wrong bet? What if they made a wrong business decision and then they lose money? Would the master still commend them as faithful? And my answer to this question is, yes. If they do business with the money and lose it because of wrong business decision, the master would still commend them as faithful. Why? Why do I say that? Because this parable is not about profit, but about transactions. It is not about how much money they have made, but about whether they have used the money to do business. Good business or bad business are not the main issues here. It is about using the money or not using it. Well, how do I know, you may ask, how do I know that this is about transactions and not profits? How am I sure about that? Well, we have to look at one verse in this passage to find the key to unlock the whole parable. And the tragedy is that most people do not pay much attention on this verse and its connection with the whole parable is very often overlooked. When this verse is overlooked, the meaning of this whole parable will be lost. Now, which verse am I talking about? Now, I'll show you first. The verse is number 14, and it says, But his, the master, the nobleman, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation team after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. Now, this is the verse. Of course, when I just, if I just show you this verse, we probably don't get what, what it wants to say, how it's connected with the whole parable. So let me deal with the beginning of this parable first before going into this verse. At the very beginning, the parable says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Now we know this noble man is a king to be. But before he can assume his kingship, he has to go to the capital of the empire and then he has to pay a visit to the emperor and receive from the emperor his official blessing. In Jesus' world, under the Roman imperial rule, no one can serve as a vassal king without Rome's permission. In about 40 years before Christ, Herod the Great, he made a similar journey to Rome to receive his vassal kingship over Judea from the ruler, Mark Antony. Same thing happened when the son of Herod the Great attempted to succeed his kingship in about four years before Christ. So Jesus has used a political scene familiar to his audience as the background of this parable. So as the story continues, the nobleman gives a speech to his servants before he journeys into the far country 
in order to receive for himself kingship and return. And the scripture continues. Can you press for me? Next slide. Thank you. The scripture continues, it says, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now the nobleman calls ten servants and gives each of them a minor, a pound. A pound, a minor, is equivalent to 100 days wages for a working man in the first century. So this is approximately three to four months of salary. The pound is clearly a free gift from a generous master to each of his servants. But they also, the servants also receive a mandate of how this pound is to be used. They are told to put this money to work. Now, in today's capitalistic society, we can easily think of this as investing in stock, in mutual funds, in real estate, or any other financial instrument. But this is not the case in the first century. There's no such financial market there. Put this money to work literally means engage in trade or do business with this money. They have to use the pound to involve in active businesses, such as opening a shop or do tradings. So in short, they have to represent their master, this nobleman, to do business. Now, what kind of business is not specified? So we can assume it is totally up to the discretion of the servants. And the master continues his speech by mentioning about his return. In NIV, the word is translated as until. The servants are to do business with the money until the master returns. The word until is a time reference word. If this is the case, then the whole point of the master's comment becomes, get out there and do your best. You have limited time to prove yourself in the marketplace. On my return, I expect profits. See how much money you can generate. Take opportunities now. Make hay while the sun shines. But on returning, however, we, we see the master, he summons his, ser- his servants and commands the first being faithful, not successful. So, so what the master really seeking? Well, the word until can better be translated as because. Because is a causative, is a cause and effect word, not time reference. It gives a reason why the servants should engage in trade. And the reason is that the master will return. It means that it will not make sense to use the pounds if the master will not or cannot return. Engage in trade because I am coming back. But this meaning renders a significantly different understanding of the entire story. The word because indicates the master is confident that he will and he can come back. Engage in trade because I am coming back. But we have to know 
at the time of Jesus, there was no stable political institution across the Middle East. Transitions of leadership or succession of kingships were times of great stress, great risk, and a high level of uncertainty. Many prominent leaders went to Rome to receive kingship, but they never able to make it back to their kingdom. There were oppositions against each king-to-be. The oppositions can range from a delegation team sent to Rome to lobby the Caesar to reject the request of kingship, or to sending hit teams out and assassinate the king en route. Herod the Great, for example, he went to Rome to receive kingship in 40 BC, but he had to fight until 37 BC before his kingdom was securely under his control. The son of Herod the Great, Achilles, he was not as successful as his father. In 4 BC, Achilles went to Rome to try to secure his kingship after his father died. But because he was not popular at all with the people, a delegation team of 50 representatives went to Rome to lobby the Caesar to reject Achilles' request to be their king. They went to Rome to tell Caesar, we don't want this man to be our king. Although Achilles, at the end, he eventually received the power to rule over Judea, he had never received the title king. So the master said, Engage in trade because I am coming back. The master is confident without uncertainty that he will receive kingship and he will and he can return. He thinks that, but not everyone thinks the same way. Now we come to the verse of the day, verse 14. It says, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we want this man to be our king. Does this sound familiar? Just like Achilles, the son of Herod the Great. It would have sounded so familiar to Jesus' audience. Because Achilles, the events associated with Achilles happened in this very generation. Knowing the master is gone, knowing there is a delegation going after him, what will the servants do with the pound that they have received from their absent master? What would they do now? Imagine you are one of the servants. What would you do now? Now let's imagine that I am the nobleman and you are my servant. And now I'm telling you, I'm going to be away for a while. I don't know exactly when I will come back. And I'm giving you, each of you, $100,000. Not bad, eh? And I want you to open shops, do business, on my behalf, on Robson Street, downtown, in my name. Of course, okay, 100000 I know, is not enough. Let's not argue that, okay? And the sign of the shop will, of course, read, his Majesty Sam Wong's Royal Chinese BBQ <laughs> or, or Royal Dollar Store or whatever. Fish and chips. And, and keep in mind, 
that I am coming back. Okay? I know. I know I have enemies. And I know they will most likely follow me and try to destroy me. And I know they will almost for sure that they will do surveillance in the town here to see who identify themselves with me. But fear not. I will prevail and I will return. Now, what will you do once you receive the money and once I leave the country? In a capitalistic financial market, whenever there is uncertainty such as political instability, investors will withdraw capitals from the market and put the money into gold which preserves value. In a politically unstable situation, it is totally against wisdom to invest money and start new businesses. Smart people will do the opposite because it is safe to be on the side until the situation becomes more stable and the winner has emerged. Well, this is especially true when you are doing business on behalf of an absent and vulnerable king. In his absence, and when people are not sure if he would or could return, if you are to open business on his behalf, you do not just risk your money. You are risking your entire well-being. You risk your everything when you declare that you represent your master during his absence. Well, you have to be tremendously faithful to him if you are to declare your loyalty to him during his absence and in the midst of his enemies. Now you get the picture? The story assumes the servants in the parable know all about the delegation that followed the nobleman with the intention to undermine him at all costs. At a time like this, everyone with even a little bit of political sense will bury the money and wait to see who wins the right to rule at the end. All the smart money in the town would be buried under the floor of the back room. No one knows how such a dangerous and risky journey will end. But the nobleman wants to know, are you willing to take the risk and openly declare yourselves to be my loyal servants during my absence in a world where many oppose me and my rule. And today, Jesus, he still wants to know, are we willing to take the risk and openly declare ourselves to be his loyal servants during his absence in a world where many oppose him and his rule? As the nobleman distributes, he gives to his servants, he is in effect saying, once I return, having received my kingly power, then it will be easy, it will be risk-free to declare yourself publicly to be my servants. Now I'm more interested to know how you conduct yourselves when I am absent. And you have to pay a high price to openly identify yourself with me. Yeah.
something wrong with my neck? Anyway, there is a Bible seminary in, in Riga, the capital of uh, the city, uh, capital city of the Republic of Latvia in uh, Eastern Europe. This seminary is called Luther Academy. Well, they have an interviewing committee to evaluate. I'm going to turn the mic. Thank you. Now better. Now this seminary is called the Louvre Academy. They have an interviewing committee to evaluate how genuine is the faith of each candidate before they can be accepted to the seminary to be trained as pastors. The first and the most important question they ask each candidate is, when were you baptized? And that's the most important question. We might wonder, why is the date of baptism such an important question? Why? Why is it not about the transformation of the baptism? Or, or why or how they come to receive a calling to be a pastor? Why the when of baptism? Well, the interviewing com committee it states that if the candidates were baptized during the, the period of Soviet rule, they risk their lives and compromise their futures by being baptized and openly identify themselves with Jesus Christ. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets in 1991, then the committee will have many further questions to ask them about why they want to be pastors. In the parable, the, the master challenges his servants to live boldly and publicly as his servants, using his resources, unafraid of his enemies, and confident in, his, in the future as the master's future. While we should not be surprised that the parable is also extremely relevant to us today, openly declaring yourself as servants of Jesus Christ is definitely politically incorrect in most parts of our society, sadly. I know someone from UK who worked for an airline. She got suspended for three months because she was wearing a cross pendant on her neck during work. A nurse there, also in UK, got suspended for six months because she prayed for and she prayed with her terminally ill patient. And it is no better in Canada, isn't it? Our religious freedom is constantly under attack like never before in the history of this country. Churches are being marginalized. Bible is being seen as hate speech. Well, in a situation like this, we might want to cry to Jesus and petition to Him to come back ASAP. Jesus, just please return ASAP. But our Master is asking us, all of us, are we willing to take the risk and openly identify ourselves to be His loyal servants during His absence in a world where many oppose Him and His rule. 
the good thing is the parable doesn't just end with such question. The master does return. In verse 15, the story continues. He, the nobleman, was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now, this is another translation that carries a taste of capitalism. Is the master really interested in what they had gained with the pound? The phrase what they had gained is one single long word in original Greek. Its primary meaning is not about how much is gained, but render the meaning how much business has been transacted. The focus here is not the amount of profit, but on the number of transactions. And the difference is crucial. If the master wants to find out what has been gained by the trade, he will ask some form of, hey, show me the money. But he, if he is asking, how much business have you transacted? He is seeking to discover the extent to which the servants have openly and publicly declared their loyalty to him during the risky period of his absence. Now a quick auditing of the account books will reveal the scope of the servants' public exposure as loyal servants of the absent nobleman. Before the master departed, he challenged his servants to represent him publicly during the uncertain time of his absence and assure them of his return. At his homecoming, he wishes to check the extent to their obedience to his command. So in, his, in the account books, a full ledger will reveal that the entire community knew the servant in question was the master's man. A nearly empty account book will witness to the servant's fear and unwillingness of showing public loyalty to him. If we take a look of our own, each of our own account book, what will it say today? The first servant replies to his master, Your miner has earned ten more. Pay attention to this. The servant did not say, I have made a thousand percent return, or I had carried out very sound market research. His reply to his master has left himself out of the picture. Your miner has earned ten more. That's it. Your gifts have produced the fruit. The master commands both servants for being trustworthy, or more literally accurate as faithful, not successful. And in like manner, Apostle Paul tells his reader, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. The, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. This is in 1 Corinthians. See this? Their reward is according to their labor. Not to his production, not to his productivity, not how much profits they have generated, and not successful they are. The labor shows how diligent, how faithful they have been. But there is a third servant. The first servant claims to be afraid of his master. 
And that's why he did not do anything with the money. But in fact, he was more likely afraid of what if the master cannot return? In which case, he would have put his bet on the wrong horse. And as it turns out, the horse he failed to back won the race. He ended up making excuses and putting, even putting blame on his master for his own unfaithfulness. When the master comes back and asks us, Are you willing to take the risk and openly declare yourself to be my loyal servant during my absence in a world where many oppose me and my rule? Upon his return, there will be no excuses accepted. No should have or could have will be entertained. It is what we do with his money during his absence in the hostile environment that counts. Nothing else. A British journalist once asked Mother Teresa how she kept going, knowing that she could never ever meet the needs of all the dying in the streets of Calcutta. You know how she answered? She replied, I am called, but I am not called by God to be successful. I am called to be faithful. Well, this is very bad capitalism. Who would invest in her company? The world wouldn't. But the master would. The king would. The Messiah who will reign over all creations upon his glorious return will command all who are faithful to him as good and faithful servants. The Lord, the Lord of the universe will gladly invest in your faithfulness to Him. Let us all pray. God of heaven, who was, who is, and who will be, we pray that your Spirit will empower all of us to be your loyal servant and your faithful representative in this world. And in each of our own unique situation, our challenges, that we will exercise the gifts you bestow on all of us for your name's sake. Jesus, Son of God, Savior of all mankind, may we all be bold and courageous witnesses to you who has come and died for us on the cross and will come again to rule over creation in magnificent glory. For we pray in your powerful and your almighty name. Amen.